Tonight I begin to make the argument that the children of professing believers, the children of professing believers are members of the new covenant visible church even prior to professing faith. And thus the children of professing believers ought to receive the sign and seal of entrance, the sign and seal of welcome into the visible new covenant church. Remember my original syllogism. Premise one, all those who are members of the new covenant people receive the covenant sign of baptism. The Reformed Baptists and the Presbyterian and Reformed all agree on that premise. All those who are members of the new covenant people receive the covenant sign of baptism. Premise two, believers and their children. I'm talking about their children even prior to professing faith. Believers and their children are members of the new covenant people. That is where the disagreement lies. Conclusion. Thus, believers and their children receive the new covenant sign of baptism. I've said every single week so far, because Baptists do not believe my second premise, that the children of believers are members of the new covenant people, at least not before those children profess faith, they reject my conclusion. So tonight we consider really one question. It's the only question we're going to look at tonight. It's not the last in the series. Next week we'll meet again to talk about circumcision and baptism, particularly dealing with baptism. Tonight we're going to deal with one question, though. Are the children of professing believers parties to the new covenant, even prior to professing faith? Are the children of professing believers parties to the new covenant. In other words, does the New Testament teach that children are members of the new covenant, visible church, parties to the new covenant, by virtue of, listen to this, by virtue of their parents being professing believers? Is that taught in the Bible? Is that taught in the New Testament? Now, we'll look more expressly at the command for baptism, as I said, next week. Tonight, I want to focus on the question Simple question, you're going to hear me say it again and again, are the children of professing believers, members of the visible new covenant church, now hear this part, on the basis of their relation to believing parents? That's really the question. Here's my thesis. The covenant of grace in every Biblical administration, including the New Covenant administration, incorporates children into the covenant, now hear this, into the covenant, including the New Covenant, on the basis of the faith of their parents. That's the thesis. I haven't proved it. That's an assertion. You guys understand the distinction? When you write a research paper, you first give your thesis, and then you test the thesis out. So I've asserted it now we'll test it and in the the thesis again i'm saying the lord covenants with believers and their children in every covenant thus believers and their children are members of the visible church and ought to be given the sign of membership so i'm going to provide six lines of evidence for my thesis ready and you know if it's six points just buckle up right (laughs) the first point will actually be somewhat long for a reason but the five after that will kind of come in rapid succession pretty quickly First line of evidence, I'll just tell you what they are in advance. You probably won't be able to write them all down. 
but I'll just tell you what they are, and then I'll walk through them. First, the children of professing believers are given the covenant promise in every biblical covenant, including the new covenant. The children of professing believers are given the biblical covenant. as They're named parties. To be given the biblical covenant, the promise, means you're a named party. In every biblical covenant, including the new covenant. That's my first argument. Second, the professing believers in the visible church, the professing believers in the visible church, in every biblical covenant, are commanded to disciple their children. Not just the children they know to be believers, but all their children. Third, the children in the visible church, the children in the visible church, are given commands and promised blessings, given commands and promised blessings in every covenant, including the new covenant. Fourth, the children of the visible church in the Old Testament and the New Testament are called holy offspring. Holy offspring. And not on the basis of their faith, but on the basis of the faith of their parents. Fifth, the covenant promises are always given to households. The covenant promises are always given to households and not just to individual units in a household. And sixth, the Son of God incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ, includes the children of professing believers in the covenant people and blesses them in the same manner as the Old Testament does. Do, do to their relation, to their believing parents, not due to their own faith. So let's briefly consider each of those lines of evidence. At this point, there are six assertions. So let's see if they actually become biblically-based evidence. First, the children of professing believers are given the covenant promise in every biblical covenant, including the new covenant. I'm going to spend the most time here. I'm saying they're shown to be parties given the promise. What I'm arguing here is about who makes up covenant parties. Say parties, we mean the people involved in the covenant. So when you have a husband and a wife or a bride and a groom who are in a marriage, making a marriage covenant, when you're at the wedding and they make a covenant, the bride and the groom are the two parties to that covenant. It's a mutual agreement made between the two of them with vows and the signs, etc., etc. When we talk about parties... I'm saying that there's the parties of God, you and your children. That's what I'm arguing, that those are the parties. Believers and their children are parties to every biblical covenant. The covenants are always between God and the believer and his children. We see that pattern in every covenant. Now, I'm not going to exhaust all the evidence. You guys already know this about me. I'm going to say less than I want to and more than I should. So that's what I'm going to continue to do. I've made a few selections to demonstrate this. Let's just start with the very first covenantal promise. You don't need to turn to these because I'll have you turn to two passages in this section for sake of time. Listen to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this mother promise, we see the beginning of the pattern in the covenant of grace. In the curse upon the serpent, the curse upon the serpent, which promises the second Adam, the Messiah, we see the offspring of the woman being included. Not just the offspring singular, that is there, 
but the offspring plural. Both Christ and his people are included. The Lord is not dealing with Adam and Eve merely as individuals. The Lord is dealing with them and their children even before they have them. They understood that. You can see that pattern in Genesis 4 and 5. But let's move forward for the sake of time. Genesis 6.18. God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. The Lord confirms the covenant he'd made in Genesis 3.15 with Noah. And that covenant includes Noah's family, his wife and children, and even their wives come into the ark with him. That's because they're all members of his household. Now, their households didn't work like ours in quite the same way. We are like, hey, husband, wife, and the kids. The parents, they can live somewhere else, right? You understand? That is not how their households were. They were all in a household like they might have not all lived in the exact same dwelling, but as a family in the same land together. Under the patriarch, in this case, Noah. They're all included because they're members of the household, not because they're believers. That becomes clear with Ham. But we'll come back to that. For now, I want to establish that Noah's children were included the blessings Noah received. Listen to Genesis 9.1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Did you hear that? God blessed Noah and his sons. Note that Noah was righteous. Noah offered an atoning sacrifice. One of Noah's three sons is wicked. But the Lord incorporates his children into the blessing. In case that's not clear enough, listen to Genesis 9.8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Your children, after your seed. All right, let's move to Abraham so we can kind of move quickly. I could demonstrate this pattern in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22. I'm just going to look at Genesis 17 for the sake of time, for which you say amen. Look at Genesis 17, verse 4. I'll have you look at this text. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive on the exegesis here of Genesis 17 because you all know that's coming. We just dealt with Genesis 13 this morning, and we're on our way. Verse 4, as God speaks to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Remember, this brings us back to Genesis 12.3. You're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. It's going to be all the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham, particularly Genesis 12, 7, and Abraham's offspring. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, which is, by the way, God keeping the command of Genesis 1, 28 in Abraham's life. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring or your children after you. Are you guys noticing a pattern? throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring or your children after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring or your children after you the land of your sojournings, 
all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be your singular Abraham's God? No, their God. Now, this incorporates Isaac, who hasn't even been born yet. I could multiply a number of examples of this in the rest of the Pentateuch, but let's just cut to the end of the Pentateuch again for the sake of time. Listen to Deuteronomy 29.29. Deuteronomy 29.29, which is going to refer to the whole of the Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and specifically the Mosaic Covenant, or the Old Covenant. Now listen. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. In other words, the things that God has not revealed in Scripture belong to him. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen tonight? That's his business. He doesn't tell us that. That's his business. What belongs to us? But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The law, the Mosaic covenant, the things revealed in the whole Torah belong to us and to our children forever. And in the Davidic covenant, that continues. It's in Genesis 3.15, it's in Noah, it's in Abraham, it's in Moses, it's in David. The Davidic covenant is with David and his offspring. David even sings about this reality. Listen to what David says in Psalm 103, verse 17 and 18. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant And remember to do his commandments. Now why is God's steadfast love. That's his covenantal love. His covenantal love. Not only on those who fear him. And his righteousness not only on those who fear him. But on their children. Perhaps it's important that I pause. Just to ask a question. Why does the Lord make all these gracious promises. To his people. What's the moving cause of God's grace, if you will? The love of God. That's what it is. He loves you and your children before you or your children do anything. He created man to be complimented by a spouse. And what was God seeking? What are we told God was seeking when he created man to be complimented by a spouse? Malachi 2.15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So God setting his covenant love upon you and your children is the Lord graciously restoring nature. What do I mean by that? Nature was ruined by the fall. The family was to be together as a unit husband, wife, godly offspring. That was ruined by sin. Grace is restoring nature, not destroying it. Sin destroys it. So he graciously covenants with you and your children. Let me say this. The Bible grounds God's gracious covenant to you and your children in his love for you and your children over and over and over again. This is given as the ground for why, even in their exile for wickedness, the Lord will renew and restore his people through a new covenant. And that's where we're moving now, the new covenant. Even in their wickedness in exile, he's going to restore them. Why? 
Isaiah 54, 8, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. That's speaking about the exile. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord God, your Redeemer. He's going to go on in Isaiah 54, 13 and talk about the fact that the Father himself will teach your children. Your children. Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And he's going to go on in Jeremiah 32 and talk about his commitment to be good to your children. In both of these contexts, the Lord goes on to make promises to you and to your children. Now, to establish the new covenant also has the same covenant parties. Let me give a couple of new covenant passages in the Old Testament and then look to the New Testament. The new covenant is prophesied the Old Testament first. Look at Jeremiah 32. I'll have you look there. Jeremiah 32 and verse 36. This is part of the New Covenant. The New Covenant text in Jeremiah begins in Jeremiah 30 in large part and runs through 33. And I picked up a couple chunks of it. But let me pick up Jeremiah 32, 36 and following because it's especially referenced in Acts 2 and following. Jeremiah 32, 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. That city is Jerusalem. It was the city of God. It was given into the hand of the king of Babylon. Behold, I will gather them, that's the Jewish peoples, both from the northern kingdom of Israel, or what became known as Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah. I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, to Jerusalem, and I will make them dwell in safety. By the way, when you come to Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, 5, you have Jews from all the nations who have been gathered back in that city. At the point at which the Messiah pours out the Spirit and begins this covenant. In full, in the sense it was cut at the cross, but pouring out all the blessings of it. And they, verse 38, shall be my people, and I will be their God. Central promise in every covenant. I will give them one heart and one way. Acts 4.32 picks this up about the early church. They were of one heart. That they may fear me forever for their own good. And the good of their children after them. When the new covenant comes. I'm going to do this work. For their own good. And. The good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. That I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. They may not turn from me. By the way. Acts 9.31. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Listen, God covenanted to do good to you before you were even born, and he did the same thing for your children. He didn't wait until you had faith to be covenant good to you, and he doesn't wait till your children have faith to covenant good to you. If you don't believe that, then give up the ghost on being a Calvinist. The Lord rejoices in doing good to you and to your children after you in the new covenant. 
Ezekiel 37. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Ezekiel 37, 24 to 27. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have all one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. David, Mosaic covenant, both. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, Abrahamic covenant, where your fathers lived. They and their children... And their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Davidic covenant again. I will make a covenant of peace with them. That's the new covenant. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now, I don't have time to deep dive on these texts, but I want you to see the same, I just want you to pay attention, the same repeated pattern. When God makes covenant promises to people, he always includes their children as parties to the covenant, even in the new covenant. The new covenant, like every biblical covenant before it, includes the children of professing believers as parties. That is obvious in the prophets. But we can see this is the case in Acts 2 as well. In Acts 2, we read about Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In this passage, we hear Peter speak about how Christ has risen. Remember, Christ came, Christ ministered, Christ was crucified, Christ rose again from the dead. You guys remember Peter preaching all of this? Christ rose again from the dead. Christ ascended to heaven. You guys remember Peter preaching all of that to the Jews at Pentecost. And we hear Peter speaking about that, how Christ poured out the promised Holy Spirit. Now listen, Jesus said in Luke 24, 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The promise of my father is the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. The promised Holy Spirit is being poured out in the baptism of Jesus. Look at Acts 1 and verse 5. Jesus is teaching for 40 days and 40 nights before his ascension, after his resurrection. Verse 4. We'll just read verse 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem... But to wait for the promise of the Father. Remember the promise of the Father in Luke 24, 49. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In other words, the promise of the Father is the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That is his baptism. That's why he'll say in Acts 1, 8, But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, that's the southern kingdom of Judah, and Samaria, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, and to the end of the earth, that's the Gentiles. All the way back to Genesis 12, 3. When? When the Holy Spirit's poured out. When's that going to come? When the baptism of Jesus comes. When? Not many days from now. Pentecost. Pentecost. So at Pentecost in Acts 2, we see this great redemptive day begin. It's so pivotal. Pentecost is so pivotal that Peter quotes a passage from Joel 2 and tells us that the latter days have begun. Now, I don't often think we spend enough time just chewing on that. 
Sometimes Pentecost turns into this thing like, well, what's the pattern and how can we repeat it? And, and nobody's really doing that in the same way with the cross and resurrection or the incarnation. Hopefully. <laughs> Unless they're really a mess, right? And the reason is, is because Pentecost is the great redemptive work of Christ, the resurrected, ascended Christ, pouring out his spirit and beginning the new creation. It's not something we just repeat. It's a historical event akin to the cross and the resurrection and the incarnation. It's a part of that whole complex of events of the work of the Messiah. And so we read Peter saying this, quoting from Joel that the latter days have begun. Look at Acts 2 and verse 17. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Notice this, the last days. That time has begun. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, I want you to note that there is an expansiveness and inclusivity of these latter days. We can see that in this language of sons and daughters, young men and old men, male servants and female servants. This new covenant work is more expansive and inclusive than the old covenant. It's no longer just specific prophets, priests, and kings receiving the Holy Spirit in this way. Further, look at Acts 2.21. We'll not deal with all the eschatological visions in the sky, etc. We'll just go to verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone, whosoever, it's like the John 3.16 language, whosoever believes in the Lord, right? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be This is actually a quotation of Joel 2.32 that is quoted again. You might notice it in Romans 10.13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You guys remember that. Taken, though, from Joel 2.32. But he stops short there. He doesn't finish the quotation of Joel 2.32. Just tuck that away. He doesn't finish it. He will finish it. But he doesn't finish it there. Just tuck that away. What I want you to know now is there's a major emphasis here on the expansiveness of the work of the Holy Spirit. He's not only going to go to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, he's going to go to all the nations of the earth. He's not just going to go and work in a certain prophet or a certain priest or a certain king. He's going to descend upon and be poured out upon your children and their parents and your wives and husbands and male and, you know, if you will, free men and slaves. It's just going to be expansive. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. Now, Peter goes on to speak about the work of Christ from his ministry through his crucifixion, resurrection, to the ascension in the rest of Acts 2 here. But look what he says Jesus did in Acts 2.33, just so we continue to track this promise of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.32 says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that were all witnesses. Verse 33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God... And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus ascended the throne and poured out the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Jesus poured out the promised Holy Spirit. 
In other words, Peter's at pains to make a point to you. Jesus is the Messiah, the spirit-anointed Messiah, the second Adam, the Savior, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the Davidic king, the Danielic son of man, the son of God who sits upon God's holy hill and rules the nations with a rod of iron, the eternal priest king, the one for whom they've waited. And he is so much better than the first Adam. Why? Thus it is written, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the first Adam became a living being because God breathed life into him, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He breathes life into you. The one who can breathe eternal life into your dead souls and dying bodies has come. That is evidenced in the fact that he resurrected, ascended, and poured out his spirit to usher in the new creation. Notice, he did all that in keeping God's promise to Abraham, his children, and all the families of the earth. Keeping his promise to Abraham, his children, and all the families of the earth. Listen to Galatians 3.14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's the nations. What's the blessing of Abraham? Ready? So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you hear that? The blessing of Abraham is the promised spirit. Joel is prophesying that the blessing of Abraham would come in the last days, and now it has come in Christ at Pentecost. That's what Peter's saying. Now look at Acts 2.37 in light of that. In other words, the Messiah's come, and y'all crucified him. You hear the problem they have? Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Now in our context... At Acts 2, we have Jews from every nation. We have Jews from every nation who have waited for the covenant with Abraham to be fulfilled to them and to their children. And those Jews want to know what to do with this news, especially in light of the fact that they crucified the Messiah. Now what? What's the answer? Peter answers them, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They should repent and believe. I'm not going to get into this. Repentance and believing are used alternatively by Luke in the book of Luke and Acts, but I won't. They should repent and or believe. Later he'll say, believe and be baptized, Acts 16, for example. Okay, so repent and believe. They should receive baptism which is the new covenant sign of incorporation in the body of Christ. And they will be forgiven their sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts 2.38, I want you to hear this. Acts 2.38 is not providing you the parties to the new covenant. They're not there. The parties are not listed there. It's providing you with the covenant obligations. What are the covenant obligations? Repent and believe. It's providing you with the covenant sign. What's the covenant sign? Be baptized. It's providing you with the covenant rewards. What are the covenant rewards? Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Further, you cannot read Acts 2.38 as providing you with the necessary logical order of events. At least not if you want it to comport with the rest of Scripture. Why? Because if this is setting down the necessary order of things, then it's not only true that repentance comes before baptism on every occasion, but it's also true that the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit only comes after repentance and baptism on every occasion. It argues too much, is what I'm saying. You will find later that they receive the Holy Spirit before they're baptized. They believe and nothing said about baptism at all, and they're forgiven of their sins. However, we know from Luke and Acts that this order is often reversed, right? We know it is. Sometimes this way, sometimes other way. So Acts 2.38 is not telling you who the parties of the covenant are. Rather, we learn that in Acts 2.39. When we get the covenantal grounding for these covenant obligations, this covenant sign, and these covenant sanctions or reward. The covenant grounding. How do I know it's the covenant grounding? Look at the first word of verse 39. For. For. Here's the grounding. You know why all this is be true? If you repent and are baptized, you'll receive these rewards. In other words, if you fulfill the covenant obligation, if you take the covenant sign, you receive these rewards of forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know why I know that? For. For. For what? The promise. What promise? Well, the promise of the Father. That's clear from Luke 24, 49, the promised Holy Spirit. The promise given to Abraham that the nations will be blessed by the pouring out of the Spirit from the Messiah. That's abundantly clear. For the promise, the promise to Abraham, the promise to Abraham and to his children and to the Gentile nations, the promise to Abraham. For the promise is for you. And for your children. And for all who are far off. That is the Gentiles. Ephesians 2, you can find that. Isaiah 57. Now notice this. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Sovereign grace. This is mimicking the language we see in Genesis 17 in the covenant with Abraham. It's talking about the covenant with Abraham. And it's using the exact same party language. Exact same language of the covenant parties. The covenant promise is to you and to your children. Now, what did that original audience hear? After 2,000 plus years of hearing that their children are covenant parties, what did they hear? The audience standing there that day. What did they hear? Did they hear that their children are now excluded from the covenant? Did they hear that the new covenant is better because it's only for you and not for your children? My argument here is further secured by the inclusion of the phrase and all who are far off. The new covenant promise language from Isaiah 57, 19. And it's employed by Paul in Ephesians 2, 13 to speak of the Gentiles. So the promise to Abraham, the blessing of Abraham is being extended to all the same parties promised to Abraham. But here comes an objection. You ready? Because I think you're probably ready for it. But doesn't the last phrase, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, delimit you, your children, and all who are far off? Does not that mean that the promise is only for the elect in all those groups? Only for the elect in all those groups. It's only for those who are effectually called in all those groups. Well, first I want to say this. Maybe, 
But I think the question misses the whole context of Acts 2. Why? First, I think grammatically it's a suspect argument. The phrase, as many as, the Lord our God calls himself, as many as, hasus on, is a pronoun and a particle. On is a particle. Hasus is a pronoun. That bring emphasis to the indefinite nature of the language, not the definite nature of the language. They're indefinite. It actually presses for a more universal and inclusive sense. Further, the Greek word there for calls is the language of summons, to summon someone. Remember Jesus tells a parable where many are summoned to a wedding, but some guests aren't welcomed? And Jesus then says, many are called, but few are chosen. Finally, this phrase is actually, everyone to whom the Lord our God shall call to himself, is actually the last part of Joel 2.32. Remember I told you, don't forget that? It's interesting here because Peter actually kind of forms an inclusio around this whole sermon and section with Joel 2.32. Everyone, whoever calls the name of the Lord to be saved, you, your children, old and young, male and female, slave and free, all the nations, as many as whoever the Lord our God calls or summons to himself. It seems to be speaking of the external call that Peter is giving right there through his preaching. But even if it means, even if it means effectual calling, and someone like Matthew Henry, who I have much respect for, thinks it means effectual calling. He also baptized infants, by the way, but he thought it meant effectual calling. Even if it's limited only to the elect, you still have the promise being announced to a visible people comprised of the same parties mentioned in the covenant with Abraham and in every covenant. And friends, Paul makes it clear in Romans 9 that the children of Abraham received the promises externally and the sign of those promises externally as a visible covenant people. And thus they received, you know, that visible covenant sign. But they did not all receive the promises internally as children of the promise, as children that are elect. In other words, Paul can say, Theirs are the promises, and they're not children of the promise all at the same time. And he does in Romans 9. So in every covenant, the promise is to professing believers and their children. Now on that ground, I'm going to bring you the next five arguments in rapid succession. You ready? Rapid succession. Follow the pattern. Second argument. The parents in the visible church in every biblical covenant. The parents in the visible church, in every biblical covenant, are commanded to disciple all their children, not just the children they know to be believers. Now you think, that seems like a crazy qualification to throw at the end. I'm going to do it for this reason. Joel knows this because he was here at a meeting one time when this happened. I have met Baptists, and this is not ordinary among Baptists, just to be clear, but I just want to throw that qualification in just to make it really clear. I have met Baptists, as is Joel, because he was there with me, where we talked to a man, because he was a Baptist, not consistent in my view with his theology, but in his view. Because he said, I don't disciple my kids until they profess faith. And so I pointed out to him that he was disobeying a clear command in Ephesians 6. So that's why I throw that, not just the children they know to be believers. That's why I throw that on there, for the extremists among us. All right. The children are included in the visible church, in every biblical covenant, 
as those who are to be discipled by their parents. The children are to be taught to keep the covenant obligations. Let me just give you three quick examples. Just listen to these. Genesis 18, 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Mosaic covenant, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Ephesians 6, 4, new covenant. I've just given you Abraham, Moses, and now new for sake of time. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Fondly cherish them, I think Calvin rightly says. In the discipline, that's the paideia, the inculturation and instruction of the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus. That's how Paul uses the word Lord. Raise them as Christians is what he's saying. Disciple them in the Lord Jesus. So we see the children being discipled in every covenant. Please be clear, it's not a command to disciple your children as Christians after they've already professed faith. It's a command to disciple them as Christians from their infancy. doesn't mean they're saved, but you're discipling them in the Lord. Go track the language in the Lord or in Christ or in Jesus in Ephesians. Third, the children of the visible church are given commands and promised blessings in every biblical covenant. Given commands and promised, the children are given commands and promised blessings in every biblical covenant, including the new covenant. The children are commanded to keep covenant obligations in every biblical covenant. The children also promise the same blessings in every biblical covenant. Again, for the sake of time, let me give two examples. Listen for the covenant obligation and the covenant blessing in both. I'll give you the two big contrasting covenants, the old covenant and new covenant. You ready? Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Did you hear it? Command, obligation, honor your father and mother. Blessing, that the days in the land may be long. Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Ooh, there's that interesting in the Lord language again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Command. Ready? Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with the promise. You ready for the blessing? That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Note that the old covenant and new covenant have the same obligations with the same blessings attached to the children. Fourth, the children in the visible church in the Old Testament and New Testament are called holy offspring. Holy offspring. And not on the basis of their own faith, but on the basis of the faith of their parents. Israel was set apart as holy to the Lord. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Even their children were considered a holy offspring to the Lord. That's the point in Malachi 2, 15. The Spirit made the two one so they might have godly offspring. They're set apart as a holy nation. Thus, what were they not to do? 
intermarry with the pagan nations. But they often did. And Ezra 9.2 comments on that very interestingly. Listen to Ezra 9.2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives, some of the Gentile daughters, for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race, and actually ESV translates, I don't wish they wouldn't have chosen race, the holy offspring has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. I don't know if you heard that. The holy offspring has mixed itself with the people of the land. In other words, the children of Israel, the visible church of the Old Testament, were holy or set apart or consecrated with their parents. They were the distinct people of God, unlike those outside, not like the unbelieving pagans outside of God's visible church. They were those that were the holy people, those who were a part of the people. Listen to Paul speaking about the children of a believing spouse now. You ready? 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, because of her faith. Remember households. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. That's Levitical language. You know what that means? You're outside the camp, not inside. Unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Because why? The faith of their parents. The point is not that all your children are elect or saved, just as that was not the point in the Old Testament. But this is Levitical language saying your children are not unclean, but rather they are holy, consecrated. And you know what that means in Leviticus? It means they could dwell with the church near the tabernacle where God dwelled. They were part of the visible covenant people who were consecrated to corporate worship. They were not part of those outside the church who were pagans. And this is speaking of the children of believing parents in the new covenant on the basis of their relation to a believing parent. They're not a part of the outside world out there. They're a part of the church inside here, holy, not unclean, consecrated, set apart from the world. Not like them out there. The status of children in relation to the covenant has not changed. It's not an argument right there in itself for baptism. That's an argument for the pattern. The status of children in the new covenant hasn't changed. Same language. Fifth, the covenant promises are always given to households and not just to individual units of households. Now, I covered this in my sermon on Genesis 7-1, where I stated the first use of household in the Bible is attached to Noah's covenant. Noah and his household were to get on the ark and be saved because Noah was righteous. Noah believed and the whole family was included. We see that throughout the whole Old Testament. Further, the same emphasis of households is picked up in the New Testament. God is always, listen, God is always following the pattern of covenanting with households, not merely individual units of households. Luke 19.9, And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today, salvation has come to this man, individually, on his own, this house. 
since he's also a son of Abraham. Now, you might rightly argue, well, that's a Jew. Zacchaeus is a Jew, so this language obviously applies to him, and he'd understand it. But what about Gentiles? What do they know about covenants and households? Well, let's think about the Philippian jailer. He was not a Jew, nor was he even a God-fearing Gentile who knew the Old Testament. Neither. Acts 16.30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and you alone, you and your household. Further, we see again and again that whole households are baptized. Friends, I don't need to prove the makeup of every one of those households. We don't even know in some cases in order to demonstrate that the same biblical pattern of the same covenant parties holds in every biblical covenant. Without exception. Don't miss the forest for the trees. There's a whole forest of biblical data. Don't miss it for the little tree here, little tree there. Finally, six, the Son of God incarnate included, the Son of God incarnate included the children of professing believers and the covenant people and blessings in the same manner. In the same manner, in the covenant people and blessings, in the same manner as we see in the Old Testament. Listen, due to their relation to believing parents, not due to their own faith. Not due to their own faith. What did Jesus do when those following him brought their children to him? Look at Matthew 19, verse 13. It's important here you understand what I'm establishing. The incarnate Son of God's inclusion of children in covenant blessings. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then children, now just so you know, Luke tells us they were infants. He uses the most specific word that these children at this scene were infants. Brophe, infants. So then children, then infants, were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. Now, Mark goes on, by the way, to tell us that Jesus was indignant that the disciples did this. He was deeply angry. But Jesus said, let the little children, that's the infants, come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, Mark tells us. And between Luke and Mark, we learn he picks them up to himself. The children of disciples, followers, how many of them were true believers? I don't even know. But they were professing believers. Bring their infants to Jesus. And he picks them up in his arms and lays his hands on them and blesses them. Covenantal blessings upon them. That's the only kind of blessings the great high priest gives to anybody. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He blesses two people in all the gospels. Jesus blesses these infants here and the apostles at his ascension. That is not insignificant. Now people object, but Jesus didn't baptize the infants. You're right. But that objection is irrelevant. Why? 
Jesus didn't baptize anyone. John's clear about that. What we do know is that Jesus said the kingdom of heaven belongs to these children, and Jesus blessed them. Infants. He blessed them and said the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Imagine right now, I want to say this because I want you to hear this. Imagine, prior to this series, I bring an infant up on the stage, I bless the infant, lay hands on it, and say, to this infant belongs the kingdom of heaven. A lot of you would be outraged. And Jesus does that. Sovereign grace, the covenant people of God, did not change in the new covenant. Jesus is himself the new covenant. He is its mediator, and he embraces your children. And if Jesus embraces your children in the covenant, taking them to his own bosom and extending to them his covenant blessings, why would his church exclude them from her visible people? Parents, Jesus loves your children. And he promises to be God to you and to your children after you. He will not relent in doing good to you nor to them. He is the same Christ with the same promise to the same people. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You should take heart in that and pray accordingly. You should go to the Lord with your children and say, give them to me in salvation Make good the promises you've given in their lives. You should say the same thing about your wayward adult children. Keep your promises to be good to them, to save them. Take heart in that. Pray accordingly. Ask the Lord to keep his promises to your children. Next week, we'll consider whether all this means there's a command to then baptize the children of believers. Is there a command to then baptize those children? We'll look at that next week. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see the everlasting loving kindness that you've extended to us and to our children after us, to all the nations, though we don't deserve any of it. You have made promises. You have been gracious and kind to a sinful, wayward people. We pray that you would Bless all the children of our church with the gift of salvation, that they would all look to your son. We ask you to save them, to make good your word in their lives. We ask that we would, as a people, continue in the face of even disagreement to love one another Be patient with one another. Be kind to one another. And exalt your son, the Lord of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.